3: Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at Radio Team at Emissions dot org. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emission Show. And I think we're ready for our first guest. We're going to be talking about the Adani mine. Now, you've all heard about that. You might have heard about the yakka skink and the ornamental snake and uh, how they stopped a coal mine in its tracks. Well, there's a very cute graphic on Twitter with a picture of close-up of that skink, the endangered one, saying, coal mine, not yours. Even Alan Jones is getting in on the act. He's got an ad on Lock the Gates Alliance telling us about how outrageous it is that we are being prevented by George Brandis for taking action if we don't particularly live near where the coal mine is. We will be hearing from three legal experts tonight. Um, um, About half past five, we'll talk to law lecturer Christy Clark and then... Oh, we're we're going to talk to Christy Clark now. That's really good. Okay, so we'll talk to Christy Clark now, but after that we'll uh, talk to Jeff Smith from the heroic New South Wales Environmental Defenders Office. They had a win against Adani, so we'll talk to him. And then I'm hoping at the end we'll be getting Professor Samantha Hepburn from Deakin University. So are you there, Christy? I am, thank you. How Uh, are you today? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you very much for taking our call. We've got a bit out of schedule, but it's really great to uh, talk to you. And we're going to start first by talking about this... um Thing, but George Brandis. Uh, he, well, I'd like to know what your first reaction was when you heard George Brandis, the Attorney General, calling action against mega projects, lawfare, and vigilante litigation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look,
1: look, I have to admit to not being entirely surprised. I think it's somewhat consistent with a lot of the rhetoric that the government uh, has been using since they came into office, and even in opposition sort of um, trying to divide people along ideological lines and those who fit within um, what, what they kind of consider to be the sort of the economically driven model are uh, seen as neutral. And everyone else is sort of being pushed out and being framed as extremists. Um, I think it's really unfortunate. I don't think it takes... Uh, the debate forward in a very healthy way, certainly Mm. not for democracy. But uh, unfortunately, I wasn't entirely surprised um, that this was the way that he's framed this this, um, particular iteration of the debate.
3: Yes, it's a a real attack, but uh, it seems to me that it's the sort of backlash you get when people are, you know, desperate. But um, the Minerals Council of Australia also came out with something similar. The CEO, Brendan Pearson, said oh, the gaming of the environmental approval process by a handful of protest groups now borders on the farcical. And he called it green sabotage and that it threatened job losses and would lower wages and lower living standards. So what do you think this backlash shows about our culture or the state of play at the moment regarding these coal and gas mines?
1: Well, I think think it's actually been a very useful highlighting of stuff that has been sort of kept behind the scenes for a while. I mean, if you have a look at the statistics, what we find is that 0.5% of our mine applications have not been approved. Um, So we're seeing a real um, process of, of, yes, they do have to sort of dot the T's and cross the I's to some extent, but there's a real expectation essentially that development will just continue to steamroll ahead. And that what we see is the environment, the the environmental laws sort of just being used as one more form to fill out, rather than any genuine balancing of, um, of the rights of local communities, the environment, or any sense of environmental justice around this. There's this sort of fundamental expectation that each and every development will go ahead. And it seems that in this particular case, when that didn't happen, they almost, couldn't quite believe that (laughs) their own laws were being used against them, which... It sort of shows that there's almost an expectation that they're above
3: the law. Yes, I think so and that's what your article I'm speaking to Christy Clark listeners and she wrote a very good article in The Conversation she's a lecturer in law at Southern Cross University and she has a PhD in human rights law so I thought you were very sensitive to the impact on our whole democracy and I'll ask you a bit, that, a bit about that later but let's just stay with George Brandis I was wondering if, you know, just to be a bit facetious do you think he might not have something you know, uh, I looked up the word vigilantes in the dictionary and it says that they are (laughs) committees of citizens for the maintenance of order in the absence of regular or efficient courts and you might be thinking of lynch mobs intimidating negroes in the deep south but i think in mild-mannered australia our green vigilantes are actually going through the courts and they're not alternatives to the courts they're going through the courts but there's a um, there's a hint that they are acting because the courts have failed and they probably won't go away these vigilantes if the court will rule against them. And I wonder do you think our courts aren't really up to criminalising greenhouse gases?
1: Look, I, I do think that currently what we have is um, a system of legislation and even a, a sort of a conservative common law system which is sort of inherently built around the expectation that that. That the economy is the first consideration and that everything else really comes next. So what you see in a lot of these cases that do go before the courts in relation to development applications, particularly for mines, is the courts will say, well, the economics, we can see this as being quite reliable. So we can rely on the the expert assessment given by the mine that, say, it will create 10,000 jobs or whatever it is that they claim. Hmm. But the science, you know, what they're telling us about the possible impact on climate or on the Barrier Reef or any of these things, this is all a little bit more unclear, and so we can't give a lot of weight to that. But of course, if you have a dig down into the economics, it's just as unclear. It's just as speculative. And as we know in this case, the mind's actually going to possibly create Fourteen hundred and sixty-two jobs, not the ten thousand they initially claimed, mm. and the impact on jobs in tourism could be far in excess. So there's nothing certain about the economics, but we do have this kind of overarching framework to our legislation and to the way that our courts have managed it, as seeing the economics as being paramount. And, and yes, that is a real concern when it comes to such an, in, you know, an incredible threat as climate change, because we're just very ill-equipped to deal with
3: it. Mm well we're all waiting for that landmark case that'll come and take climate change as its prime thing but it's prime reason, you know. But um George Brandis is still calling citizens he you know, he's he's just defending um, the business interests. So of course there are millions and billions of dollars at stake here. He but he says citizens groups have a vendetta against development and they want to bring massive developments to a standstill. Well, he's quite right. Yeah. I think we do want to bring them to a massive well, standstill. Exactly. The question is whether that's legitimate or not. Yes.
1: And he sort of seems to be taking it as a given that it's not. Mm. Uh, What's very interesting, though, I thought it was really interesting that you picked up on the idea that vigilante groups operated in in areas in which law enforcement had perhaps failed to operate. And it's really interesting in this case because what we have here is not a group making up new evidence, not a group making any claim in fact at all. The environment minister admitted to the court he had failed to abide by his own act. Mm. So what this group has done this local environmental group, the, the McKay Conservation Group. Yeah. They've actually simply said, can you abide by your own laws? Yeah. And do you know whose job that should be? Under our entire common law system, the Attorney-General is right. tasked well, with I ensuring wondered... that does abide by their own laws. The Attorney-General should have taken that litigation because that's his job.
3: Yeah, I wondered why it was a, a local group. People
1: do it, a vigilante group. Yeah. They're acting in the space that he's vacated. Yeah, well... They're getting to step in in support
3: of the community. I mean, it's quite chilling to think if they hadn't taken that action, the whole thing would have been approved and it would have gone through. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Well, mm. in fact, it had. Mm. Well, if, he yeah. man- if George Brandis manages to cut off the citizens' standing, I'd like you to explain to the listeners what standing means before the court, but if he <laughs> manages to cut off their standing, um, what will that do for our democracy?
1: Well, it is a concerning, um, it is a concerning suggestion, and, and I do have my doubts that it is going to get through the Senate, but let me explain. Standing simply means that you have the right to appear before the court. So when you don't have standing, then the court considers you to be a stranger to the situation. So as an example, if you and I had a contract, yeah. then somebody who's not within that contract doesn't have the right to go to court and say, well, you know, you're not upholding your obligations under the contract. And we can all understand that because it's really not their business. And so that's what standing works to kind of keep those whose business it is in and those whose business it's not out. Yeah. In this particular case, standing under the EPBC Act is actually relatively limited. It's not just anyone. It's people who are directly affected or a group with a history of significant activity in either research or protecting the environment of that area Mm. within the last few years. Mm. So they have to have had an interest in some respect. They want to cut out that second element. So they want to take out environmental groups, essentially. And what that will mean is that the only people who are considered to have an interest are people with an economic interest. Mm. So it limits people down to how much money they have invested in a situation rather than whether or not they have an interest in actually protecting the environment, stopping um, further you know, impact of climate change, stopping the pollution of the groundwater, stopping the, the you know, reduction of biodiversity within the country or within their area. And so it is a really significant framing of whose interests are legitimate, those people with money, primarily corporations, and those people whose interests are not legitimate, and that's the rest of us. And it means that if the government doesn't abide by its own laws... The only people that can force them to abide by their laws are corporations, essentially.
3: Right. So that takes us, in your article, you started out defining what an authoritarian state is like, and (laughs) there are many of them around the world, and the the, um, citizens don't have any of the rights that we enjoy in Australia, and George Branch is taking away something. He thinks it's just a small sentence in the the act, but it looks like a major uh, body blow to our democracy.
1: Yeah, and as I was saying sort of initially, this is actually part of a pattern of behaviour that they've engaged in since coming into Parliament and since coming into government. And so they've taken moves to criminalise protest, which is another obviously cornerstone of a democracy. They've taken moves, in in fact, to create um, criminal... Uh, so, so there used to be an exemption under the secondary boycott provisions of the Competition and Consumer Act, which is a criminal uh, provision. And there used to be exemptions for people who were engaging in boycotts for environmental or consumer reasons. And they've mooted that they'd like to take that away so that people can't encourage people to boycott, say, um, People who use old growth forests in their wood, mm-hmm. in their you know wood products or something of that nature, they've they've also attacked a human rights commissioner quite severely for speaking out on behalf of another marginalised group. So there's a whole range of actions that they've taken, really to silence dissent. Yeah, and I think that when you have a look at that in the framework of you know democracy versus authoritarianism, it's a very concerning slide.
3: Yeah, well, look, I'd like to switch to another part of New South Wales now. Um, you mentioned in your article also about Met Gasco, and a lot of the listeners will remember the Bentley blockade, you know, up in the Northern yeah. Rivers area, northern New South Wales yeah. now. Um, now, the Supreme Court approved met Gasco after the I forget there was a series of things that eventually the Supreme Court approved their right to drill for gas and that's uh-huh, through yeah. fracking and the premier of New South Wales I think is offering to buy back their licenses because it's electoral yeah. poison you know the people up there really don't want it and um, so we remember the Blent Bentley bouquet they marshaled thousands of people and the New South Wales government realized they'd have to send up about 800 police just to Quell right. that number of people. So, in fact, if the Metgasco wants to go ahead and drill, they'll have to um, demand of the state government that it sends up a huge number of police to protect them. So, I wonder: would this, you know, to break through this, would the state government have the legal power to just cancel the gas licenses on the proviso that there is no social license in that area for for the action? Well,
1: In fact, that's what occurred. So, the license had been granted. And after the uh, Bentley blockade really came almost to a head, so you know that they, they were um, the New South Wales police were fishing about time about town, attempting to get catering for just under eight hundred police. Yeah. And, They'd secured pastures for the mounted play of the horses but no one would cater <laughs> for the, the food that was poison in the area yeah. um, they, um, they had further consultation they realized this as you say was absolute electoral poison and was really going against what the community wanted overwhelmingly so they did cancel the license on the basis that, that there had been a genuine fail to, cons- uh, to consult with the community that met Gasco's idea of simply letting people who were in just in the small surrounding area, essentially let them know that they were going to drill, wasn't enough to be considered consultation. Consultation needed to actually involve bringing people on side in some way. Mm. But what happened in the Supreme Court was the court found that that wasn't a a good reason to cancel their licence. They didn't have the right to cancel their licence. So under the current law, no, they can't. But they are absolutely free tomorrow to, to alter the Act in order to give them the right and simply to change the Act so that it means that actually having some kind of social license, having some kind of genuine consultation with the community is an essential component of doing something as divisive as fracking or coal seam gas drilling within a local community, a farming community. Yeah. Um, but but so far they have chosen not to go down that path.
3: Oh, what? All right. Well, that that gets us up to date that. I'd love to talk to you again, Christy. I've got more questions to ask you but we'll have to uh, invite you another time uh we're going thank to you very much, thank for you for been. talking to us so that was christy clark who's a law lecturer at southern cross university and um she's filling us in on the case of the adani coal mine that was um uh, rejected by the court uh, the proposal of greg hunt to have it approved uh we're now going to have a small break and then we'll have professor samantha hepburn now, we've heard from Christy Smith about the case of uh, Adani, and our next guest is Jeff Smith from the New South Wales Environment Defender's Office. Uh, the Environment Defender's Office were the ones who represented the Mackay Conservation Group in a challenge to Greg Hunt's approval of the $16.5 billion Carmichael mine. So, thank you very much, Jeff, for speaking to us. It's a pleasure. Oh, great. Tell us about the Mackay Conservation Group.
2: Uh, Well, the Mackay Conservation Group is a small uh, community group uh, that's been around for about 30 years. Um, And in that time, they've been actively involved in a whole range of environment and conservation activities. Well, did the federal court
3: actually hear their case?
2: Uh, No, well, that was a slightly interesting... Uh, or slightly unusual and interesting yep. um, thing about this case, in that the um, the federal court uh, didn't need to make a decision. What actually happened was that the the minister Greg Hunt actually conceded um, that he'd made a legal error and wrote to the federal court asking them to um, to set aside the decision. So we didn't need to step inside the court.
3: Does that mean it's just sort of pending then? It's like uh, waiting for him to reevaluate the proposal or is there just no certainty whether he will uh reevaluate it?
2: Well presumably he will reevaluate the proposal. Um, so well, what it does is it means that that, that decision uh, that he originally made is invalid yes, um, and that the minister needs to have a look at it again um, and make a decision that is lawful. Wow. Um, including for example the grounds in which the decision was set aside was the failure to take into account the impacts on um, two um, nationally threatened species. Yes now very uh, famous. got a lot of <laughs> yes, I was going to say, they've they got a lot of attention, the uh, ornamental snake and the yakka skink. How so those both of those species were not taken into account. So in remaking the decision, then the Minister would need to take into account the conservation advices in relation to those species, but also um, other matters which uh, potentially were relevant.
3: Yeah, well, you raised the issue of the um, two things. We'll talk about Adani's reputation later, but the one about the, the uh greenhouse gases. I want to know why was the court unresolved on whether the Minister had failed to consider the global greenhouse gas emissions from burning the coal?
2: Oh, okay. Well, that, that's um, an easy question to answer in, in a legal sense because the Minister um, conceded on on the other issue. Um, so there was no need... Um, you only, uh, if you, if I can put it this way, you only need to identify one flaw oh,
3: okay. in
2: the decision-making process for the decision to be set aside. So, those other um, issues, um, you know, remain. Unresolved at the moment, as to whether um, those greenhouse gas implications and Adani's environmental history oh. remain unresolved.
3: Well, I can practically hear, the, yes, I can practically hear the whole nation holding its breath, you know, for that decision. Um, right. Wh- what did you say about Adani's environmental record in India? I believe there's been an exodus of banks who don't want to finance this project anymore, and Adani have been laying off contractors. So what did you say what did you find out about their environmental record at home?
2: Uh, well, the 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 the, um, the issue there was around that their uh, their compliance and enforcement record within India, um, which is um, relatively poor um, within India, and also there is some evidence that uh, within Australia as well, um, and that is one of the grounds where you where the minister could decide um, not to grant an approval, but, you know, by by looking at corporations environmental history and saying well we don't think it's appropriate in these circumstances to give an approval
3: okay so now look the media downplayed your victory i think they a lot of people i heard on late late line you know someone just said it was a technical hitch a lot of red tape you know just a mere glitch you know we'll be back in business soon what do you say was it just a technical hitch
2: no, we, we would say it is absolutely not merely a technical hitch. There's, this was a case, these are important laws that we have in operation. These are our federal environmental laws. They're not local council bylaws, they're our federal environmental laws. So any failure of the minister or other decision maker to, to make the decision properly is a, is a serious flaw and, and, um, and as we see in this case, it's serious enough and material enough for the decision to actually be be set aside. So mm. we certainly don't see it as a technical hitch in any way, shape or form.
3: Well, we've just been talking to Christy Clark and she said that really it was George Brandes' area to be checking all of that. And I think it's rather chilling that it took a local group like the Mackay Conservation Group, with your help, to, to point out the error and take it to court. If they hadn't done that, what would have happened?
2: Um... Well, uh, if I can answer it this way, yes. So, so presumably, I wasn't... Um, uh, I didn't hear what Christy said, but oh. traditionally, um, of course, uh, if a if a flaw is identified, then it would be up to the government themselves um, to make sure that the laws were properly enforced. Um, in this instance, it, as you've rightly said, it took a third party, the Mackay Conservation Group, to identify that legal error, and... Um, and to take the matter to the courts. And that would be one of the implications of having of moving back to the old common law of standing, that you would need to rely on governments themselves or the consent of the Attorney-General, for example, mm. um, to be able to take those proceedings. And governments are unlikely, and the historical record has shown, that they rarely grant... Consent to challenge one of their own decisions,
3: right? Well, what do you think of all of this talk about vigilante litigation, and you know how we're all green saboteurs putting, bringing massive developments to a standstill? What do you think of all that talk?
2: Uh, it was clearly an overreaction. Um, I mean, the, the, the term. Uh, vigilante litigation is an oxymoron, <laughs> yes. um, we, you, you know, we, we've we used the court process um, and due process to actually identify a legal error, and this is the irony, I think, at the, the, that's at the heart of this particular matter, that we see it as an example of our federal environmental laws working well, a relatively rare example of mm. our federal environmental laws actually getting an, a, a result that results in their protection of the environment. But Mm. we, we, um, the Mackay Conservation Group approached us, and they had some concerns about the proposal. We had a look at those concerns. We identified a legal error. We pointed it out to the federal minister, and he, you know, quickly and expeditiously um, uh, conceded that an error was made and wrote to the federal court. Mm. So um, it seems like a, 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 a lot of kerfuffle
3: about nothing, really. Yeah, but well, I think it's a bit more than kerfuffle, um, Jeff. Uh, it, it seems to be a very vicious reaction, overreaction, of course, but it's sort of eroding our democracy if, if he takes away the chance of groups, as you say, well-organised groups that have some uh, track record with uh, with an area, for example, uh, being being there vigilant, not vigilantes, but being vigilant about any attack on it, like on the Great Artesian Basin, you know, or the Great, great Barrier reef i mean it seems very chilling that, that he could take away that that right
2: Yes, it's certainly a, a, a huge retrograde step um, and a step in the wrong direction to simply say that it's none of my business, none of your business. You know, the, the current rules um, in relation to our federal environmental laws are pretty much based on the uh, on the assumption that we all have an interest in a healthy environment and that we can all do something about it. It yeah. doesn't need to, something doesn't need to be going wrong in our own backyard mm. to, um, to be able to enforce those laws and you know there are other areas of law which have a similar approach and um, you know that, that may be a broader concern around uh, your, you know, your question around democratic freedoms and mm-hmm. so on The uh, our consumer laws also rely on simply broad standing provisions yeah. um, and uh, so I think it is vital to any modern functioning democracy um, that we do look at these issues in the broad way that we do yep. and just the the, um, you know, part of the rationale of that is there's no evidence for what the government is proposing to do. Um, no evidence, uh, no business case for making the, the proposed reforms that the, the courts have in place mechanisms if they're unhappy with the way that the court process is being used to To filter out unmeritorious claims and yeah. to deal with people, you know, by cost orders and so on. Um, so those things are already in place. And to the extent there have been reviews of these issues over the past few years, then in the Productivity Commission and the review of those federal environmental laws after 10 years, both didn't have a problem with the way the system was operating.
3: Yeah. Well, look, I think the EDO is doing a heroic job you're currently—I looked on the list of cases that you're currently involved in. One of is taking Shenhua's water, mic mine um, you know taking up a case regarding that the local koalas there are in the way and then there's the um, camberwell case where there's a a farmer and i've met that woman she's an elder really of this environment movement marvelous woman and her her farm is in in wendy bowman yes and 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 Mm. really she's trying to conserve the land i see her at lots of meetings you know very concerned citizen and um i think she's a marvelous advocate for you know the balance we need to restore in Australia between the the land, you know, that produces food and, and the um, mining. Yes. But, um, you know, that's one case. And I'd like you to tell us how does the Environmental Defenders Office keep, up, keep it all going against such rich and powerful forces, you know, Shenhua <laughs> Adani, <laughs> and who's who of the fossil fuel giants? Yes, well, it
2: is very much uh, grist for the mill, I'm afraid. Uh, We've been around for 30 years. This is actually our 30th anniversary this year. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were born out of a need for an organisation to represent the community um, and to... Promote the public interest, and uh, you know, I think we do it quite well. And as you say, we're often the the David, uh, or on the side of the Davids, representing yes. the Davids in that David and Goliath type battle. Mm. Um, but you know, that's what we were set up to do, and we're, we're very keen to keep doing it. You know, we. Uh, we, uh, that's what our, what the community expects Th- these are the issues that we're concerned about and we are clearly um, the experts in this field and able to do this work and get the kind of results that
3: we're getting. Yeah, well I'm sure many listeners from whichever state they're listening will know the EDO's work it's called different things, in, I think it's called Environment Justice Australia down here in Victoria but the EDO in New South Wales I think they really appreciate your work because it is the David taking on Goliath and uh, quite often it's quite clever as you've in this case it was just a clever, it was a mistake they'd made. But lastly, do you think this Adani case will end in one of those game-changing decisions that we're all waiting for and hoping, I wonder what is holding these judges back, you know, from stopping any new coal or gas for export projects on just on the basis of climate change? You know, I, I want to hear this landmark decision from someone, maybe not in Australia, maybe in the US. What do you think?
2: Well, I think the uh, if you look at the uh, if you track in, in New South Wales um, what's happened over the past few years, then um, the mining proposals, both in uh, which are which uh, historically have been assessed on the merits, and also judicial review challenges, then a lot of the the, the operating environment is changing. That the, those mines are getting much closer scrutiny um and the conditions imposed upon them are uh, being much greater um, which obviously um, helps to improve the the um, the environment in those cases um, but I do think that they that we are moving to a point where um you know mines are, attracting a great deal more scrutiny and the courts are one way that you can ensure that decision makers are held to account um, and that the environment is protected.
3: Great. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jeff, um, for speaking to us and good on your work. And I hope we can report another time in the near future that this case has turned out favourably. So thank you very much for speaking to us.
2: Thank
3: you very much. Bye-bye. Okay, we'll have a short break, and then after that we're going to speak to Professor Samantha Hepburn. Here we are back at the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Um, Listeners, we're talking about the case of Adani versus the law tonight, and we've heard about the yakka skink and the ornamental snake. Now we're going to talk um, to Professor Samantha Hepburn. She teaches mining and energy law at Deakin University, and she has just written a book about that for Cambridge University Press. So welcome, Samantha Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Would you tell us how you got interested in this area of law?
0: Certainly. Um, Well, look, my background is property and land law, and I suppose uh, that's one of the most fundamental natural resources we have if we look at land. Um, And then I became interested probably about five years ago in the development of unconventional gas, particularly shale in the United States. And then started following the progression of that in, in in relation to coal seam gas in in New South Wales, um, and of course that got me interested in uh, a whole range of issues connected with the, I suppose the expansion of, of resource developments, uh, shifting. Uh, what, what we might call post-normal technologies for the extraction of of, um, of unconventional gas, yeah. and then of course the whole issue of climate change. So um, and and how that's. You know, panning out in terms of the impact of unconventional expansion on on uh, coal-fired plants, um, and you know, perhaps looking at gas as a transition resource and coal-fired plants closing down, and of course that that's led me to, to have a close closer look at the Adani case.
3: Yes, well, I think it's very important for the students of the future, the legal minds of the future, to be really factoring in climate change. It's uh, you know, there's still this slow movement. Towards the landmark case, but um, I, I'm really glad to speak to you about this. I especially liked your article in the conversation because the title grabbed my mind straight away. It said, A Course Court case leaves the climate case, no, the climate change question unanswered. So can you set yes. the scene for us, you know? Well, well first
0: of all, thank you, uh, Vivian. Yes, the, the I mean, I think. There's been a lot of um, discussion about, obviously, changes to the national environmental legislation in terms of removing extended standing and um, the actual basis for the federal court, refu- you know, uh, decision not to approve the, um, the, the licence. Mm. Um, but the, the core issue that the Makaya Conversa- uh, Conservation Group raised was this whole issue of climate change. Um, you know, when we are evaluating opening up a gigantic coal mine, do we need to take into account the impact that this is going to have on, the clim- on, on our climate, particularly when we consider that that is one of the greatest threats to the Great Barrier Reef, which is um, adjacent to the Adani coal mine. So um, what interested me was to consider what sort of regulatory framework do we have to support these sorts of considerations and then I went back and had a look at some of the cases that have evaluated the importance of taking into account greenhouse gas emissions and obviously followed this particular um, case with interest because I would certainly argue that the scope of the national environmental legislation would um, require consideration of emissions. Um, we know that the Anticipated emissions for the Adani coal mine, whether the coal was burned in India or elsewhere, was approximately 138 million tonnes a year,
3: mm.
0: which is an enormous amount. And, you know, quite honestly, we need to start being realistic about the importance of staying within two degrees, the importance of trying to make sure that we avoid catastrophic consequences associated with climate change and you know these sorts of
3: decisions are crucial Oh absolutely and I remember one of those cases that you're referring to the late Gary Gray and he's and the Anvil coal mine case and a lot of people in the environment movement it's broader than the environment movement now really it's a its a public I don't know national interest minded group of people now consider him a hero yes. um, and, and people who've been pushing the law to take into account count the global effects of coal and gas and I think uh, Gary Gray would turn in his grave if he could hear that greenhouse gas uh, you know, can still be sidelined when climate change is so visibly urgent now
0: Every, every year it becomes more and more imperative, we know that there are rising sea levels, we've had the NASA report come out on that we know that there are so many huge issues that the globe is going to have to tackle and we have a national Environment Act, which uh, explicitly incorporates the principles of ecological sustainable development, and the Anvil Hill case interpreted those principles to include taking account of greenhouse gas emissions. And what, when you consider that the principles of ecological sustainable development, one core principle is intergenerational equity, by which basically we mean taking account of the impact of our decisions today on the environment and for future generations. Sure. Now, probably one of the most critical concerns is going to be climate change for the future generations. Um, you know, how they're going to deal with um, rising temperatures, rising sea levels. It's going to change the framework for resource management and obviously going to have enormous economic um, implications. So... Um, it's beyond belief really that you would imagine that 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 well that there is any possibility that our national environmental legislation wouldn't be capable of taking
3: those. That's, I wonder if you could explain to us, how do the judges decide? They've got the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Act in front of them. They've got the group saying, please look at the climate implications. Can they just sort of, is it optional whether they look at that? I mean, is it possible that Greg Hunt could reapprove approve Adani's licence, take it back to the court and give a detailed explet- explanation how the coal won't have any climate impact and they could accept it? Is that possible? Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's theoretically possible,
0: um, but you know, if if we assume that, 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 and, that because a, there, there are levels of discretion that we need to take account of, so the, the national legislation, the EPBC Act, requires um, consideration of uh, principles of ecological sustainable development. Anvil Hill said, yes, greenhouse gas is something that would come within that scope. So you would imagine then that that would be a relevant consideration for, um, a, you know, one of the largest coal mines um, approving that. Now, I, the Statement of Reasons explicitly did not include any sort of assessment of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and so that was, of course, the foundation for the Mackay Conservation um, seeking review, they were saying, "Well, hang on a minute. Surely today, these sorts of things are crucial, and surely today we would interpret this legislation, and the courts should interpret um, the principles of ecological sustainable development consistently with the Anvil Hill case. Surely, given the you know um, increasing imperative of mm-hmm. trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and obviously coal-fired plants are contributing enormously to this." Um, and so it is feasible, I suppose, that, that, that if it went ahead, he could say, yes, I've taken it into account, but I still don't think it's a sufficiently relevant consideration. And then, of course, a conservation group could could challenge that decision and argue, well, no, this, this is, a, a, you know, that, that, that um, there was some sort of impropriety in terms of the way in which, uh, how relevant the consideration was,
3: et etc." et cetera. That's if the environmental groups still have standing, if George Brandis hasn't taken away their...
0: So, yeah, so that's what's happened, you see. I I don't think the the government wants the argument to play out on the climate change debate because there is no doubt that opening up one of the largest coal mines will contribute to climate change. I mean, that's just, you know, incontrovertible. Um, so, what they want to do is try and, I assume the motivation is to try and stop the review process, try and impede the review pro- process, mm. because of course, uh, extended standing allows environmental groups to take action on behalf of the community. Mm. Uh, this is exactly the sort of thing that, that conservation groups seek to do. Um, you can't expect uh, private individuals to be um, taking this sort of action. This is a representative standing provision Mm -hmm. and and I can't think of an arena where representative standing is more important than within the national environmental legislation.
3: So, um, yes, I think it's becoming oh, embarrassing yeah, now, isn't it? It is, definitely. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you yes. there. I'm just thinking, yes. like, Naomi Klein's just been here and a lot of people have been passing around the audio of her talk at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. You know, she really takes us to task for being uh, yes. not just a kind word like a laggard, but a climate criminal, she's calling us now. And um, it is really imperative yes. that we yes. we face up at Paris with with something to offer. And I think the the legal yes. uh, eyes of the world must... Be honest too, because this is a very high-profile case. The I legalised
0: the I mean, the we, banks have withdrawn. Sort of situation from. where we've got the banks. I mean, we've seen, we're in a situation. It's, it's quite extraordinary mm. that we've got climate finance really ultimately making the decisions and not our government's taking a lead on this and saying, well, actually, we need to make sure... And we've even got... We need to make sure that, sorry, climate change is is a big issue and it's it's something that we take into account, particularly with something like large coal-fired plants. Um, And it's not as if new legislation would have to be introduced because the scope of the existing National Environmental Act is sufficient to allow that consideration to be, um, you know, fully... Um, taken account of. So we we have the capacity to do it. That's not a problem. And yet what's happening is we're not doing it. We're actually attempting to prevent environmental groups from uh, exercising representative standing, which is a core democratic right to be under national environmental legislation, um, and stop that from happening. And yet... And, that, and, and in the face of that, we've got all of this climate finance issue. You know, mm. we've got standard charters pulling out, Commonwealth Bank pulling out. HSBC has issued a statement saying they mm. are not going to fund coal-fired plants because they know, this is what they know, they know that they don't. their security is going to be diminished. There's only so much coal you can take out of the ground until you hit two degrees. Mm, that's so right. They're, they're, it's an it's a pure investment decision for them as well
3: Well, listeners, we're listening to Professor Samantha Hepburn from Deakin University and I'd like to ask you, Samantha, now, take a different tack. I I mean, we've had Naomi Klein here, sort of, she's written a book, she's more on the humanities side. We've had plenty of scientists come out here. We had Bob Massey last year coming out, talking about the workers not leaving the workers behind as we make a transition to the green economy. But um, I read about the Sierra Club in the United States and they're shutting down coal plants at a great rate and stopping new ones and they have a team of 250 lawyers and many allies in other professions like engineers and scientists who can be called into court And these lawyers um, are using all the levers available in a democracy, they say, to confront the fossil fuel industry and win. And I wonder, you know, if we have anything developing here in the legal community, in the progressive part of the legal community, or can you bring in some reinforcements for overseas to sort of shame us? Like, I think we need overseas shaming.
0: There's lots of very committed people and obviously, you know, let's start with, uh, the Environmental Defender's Office and, and, you know, the Mackay Conservation Group themselves, Mm -hmm. which, you know, they're, they're extraordinary in their efforts. Um, There's there's certainly a lot of committed um, academics and lawyers. But yes, let's bring in people internationally because for some reason we don't seem to be taking account of international developments. Climate change is an international concern. It doesn't sort of stop at our domestic borders. Um, Wherever the uh, emissions are released, it's going to have an impact on on our climate, on our global climate. So this is a concern for everyone, wherever we are. Um, So, yes, it would be great to get (laughs) some international experts coming in, but that is certainly not to suggest that we don't have some very strong advocates working hard at this already.
3: Could you tell us some of the names of people who are working in this area, who are, you know, making some headway? a a (laughs) (laughs) particular...
0: Well, look. You know, let me start off with one of my heroes, Ross Garno, who, who did the. Um, obviously he, he was the architect of the emission trading scheme. Mm. An extraordinarily gifted and um, clever man, uh, Martin Wilder, who is heads up uh, the climate change section at Baker and McKenzie. He's done an extraordinary amount. Um, does a lot of work in this area. Very gifted legal minds um, and working very hard to try and push towards the change that has to happen. Um, you know, and, and that doesn't undermine the enormous amount of work that all of the, I'm just absolutely um, in awe of some of the environmental defenders' offices. I mean, obviously mm. New South Wales, EDO, which has been under attack in terms of its funding. So, you know, we, we do have really strong, um, committed people here. I'm, you know, I am absolutely, committed to doing everything I can to try and um, push this forward. Um, and I think that there's a growing sense that this um, this is something that we can achieve. And, and you know, the radio programs, the, the media... play a a significant role as well because people listen and perhaps they're hearing things that they didn't know about before and perhaps that's helping them to understand a little bit more about what's happening.
3: That's right. I mentioned at the top of the program that Alan Jones has come out today with a little audio promoting Lock the Gate Alliance. You know, he's absolutely against this thing from George Brandis of cutting back standing. You know, the citizens group should... Be able to take this kind of court case and Alan Jones has got a very pithy voice I wish I could sound as (laughs) tough on radio as he does but that'll appeal to a lot of people so you're right but um, yes it will you you wrote another article about the Clean Air Act in America President Obama's making a little bit of headway there and I wondered um, Mm -hmm. over there the Clean Air Act defines greenhouse gases as a pollutant so what can we learn from them
0: well, I tell you, the first thing we can learn from that is we need to use the existing legislation that we have to implement as much climate change and, and uh, to mitigate and, and adapt um, to climate change um, consequences um, as, as best we can. Because it is going to be difficult to get, um, you know, strategic climate change inif- initiatives through through Parliament Um, There's always the politics there, but if we've already got the legislation in play, which is what's going on in the states, we've got the Clean Air Act, and the the U.S. Supreme Court has said yes. Um, You know, greenhouse gas emissions are an air pollutant. So as soon as they say that, that means that that legislation can be utilised to, you know introduce initiatives mm. at the state level um to increase uh, sorry excuse me, to decrease um, greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a very strategic approach, given obviously the political dimensions associated with climate change everywhere really, but certainly um, in the United States. And this is something we could learn about. I mean it is extraordinary that instead of using, as Obama has done, using existing, federal legislation to support climate change initiatives. We're actually trying to stymie it by precluding standing.
3: Absolutely. It must amaze outside people when they come here because they they goggle at how far ahead we were and then we've gone backwards at great rate. But we have a water trigger. I remember when Tony Windsor sort of really spoke up for that and now we have a water trigger in legislation. Why can't we have a greenhouse gas trigger?
0: Yes, and this is a hotly debated issue, and we should have a greenhouse gas trigger. I mean, this is—it's it, just extraordinary that we don't. I mean, we have—we in—I in, think it was twenty, end of twenty thirteen, early twenty fourteen, the the coal gas border trigger was introduced um, under the national legislation. So, uh, for your listeners, the, the 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 way the national legislation operates is that you have to. Come within one of the triggers, so there, if if it's a matter of national environmental significance, is determined by what those triggers are, and that will obviously give you the capacity to then seek review to uh, of, of a decision that impacts one of the generates an issue uh, under one of those triggers, um, and the federal minister has to review it. Now, if we have a situation where we are prepared... and that, Let's look back at how that trigger got in, introduced. The, the enormous groundswell of concern about coal seam gas development in New South Wales um, and, and, to some extent, Queensland as well, although it was already fairly well established, generated that push, you know, so the government responded to that. Now, maybe that's what we need... To, you know, to, to start really pushing this issue as much as we can. I mean, we've had so much discussion over whether climate change is <laughs> happening. The, the, if we read um, all of the IPCC reports and if we accept that this is something that um, the scientific community are well and truly clear on, um, then what we need to do is think fast about how to get through... Uh, regulatory tools to achieve as much as possible as quickly as possible and you know uh, introducing a trigger uh, under the national environmental legislation would be completely appropriate
3: Well I, I hope that's something that we'll see um, because certainly we're facing up a kind of terrible ideological um, wall at the moment with certain people in Parliament and you know when we need the law to stand for something much bigger than that so, do you have any last Absolutely. words to the listeners? it is listeners? an ideological war. Yeah, do, do you have any... I just um, like to say... Something that the listeners might yeah. like to do or read from uh, your work?
0: Well, look, um, in terms of what they might like, there's a lot of literature out on, on the impact of climate change. I'd like them to just... I'd love them to go and read the latest... Uh, International Panel on Climate Change report. Its a report, yeah. but reading through it, it, it it's it's profoundly um, disturbing. Yeah. and and when you uh, when you have that information when you are equipped with that information, you know that you can't just stand by and do nothing. And and a lot of people will think, well, what can I do? And, you know, I think that there's a lot of power in the community voice. So, you know, speaking out about this, making this a big issue, pushing it forward, may mean, despite, as you mentioned, the uh, ideology that we seem to have in the government, it may actually mean... That, that, that we get to that sort of point where there's a, such a juggernaut of, of push towards this, that, that change becomes hopefully inevitable.
3: Goodness. Yes, all right. I think so. And um, as I mentioned, Alan Jones, uh, listeners, if you want to look on the Lock the Gate Alliance website, they've got this um, sort of um, how to write a letter to your MP about the law involved in that George Brandis wants to change and the Adani case. So thank you very much Professor Hepburn. That was really lovely to talk to you and good luck with your work. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure, Vivian. Thank you. So that was Professor Samantha Hepburn from Deakin University. Before that, we heard uh, the law lecturer Christy Clark and another lawyer, Jeff Smith, from the New South Wales Environment Defender's Office. All of those, the Environment Defender's Office, they all need support, listeners. So if if you're thinking of supporting a group, they are really worthy of support because, as you see, they're the last bastion between things like an Adani mega mine and... uh, And, uh... Oblivion—I <laughs> can't think of the right word—but anyway, um, we, we've had a rather um, tight-packed program again. And I'd like you to remind you that the uh, Beyond Zero Emissions talk is on tonight at Melbourne University, Fritz Lowy Theatre. If you'd like to go next Sunday to an open house, there's a Beyond Zero Emissions launch—a book called Freedom House, Energy Freedom House—and it's rich, uh, at one of the BZE People's Home, which is at number 28 Ardock Street essendon and have a guess who will be there adam Band and tanya Ha who will launch the book so it's a busy book launched at someone's private home and i think that's sustainable house week that uh, next sunday so 28 ardock street essendon at twelve forty five. so thank you for listening to us we'll be with you again next monday 5 p.m now hang in there for save albert park